and welcome to episode number two of the Sanity Sessions, Exploring Mental Illness and Maladaptations. I'm your host, Clint Sabom, and if you like our content, please subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, or just the lazy quick way, just give us five stars uh, if, if you feel that way. You know, you wouldn't want to be inauthentic, would you? Anyways, my guest today is Dr. Michael Carson, and he goes over uh, psychopathology and personality disorders in particular. We talk about the difference between mental illnesses that are more biological and those that are more psychological. We get into personality disorders, their origin, their treatment. He's real good at using metaphors and analogies to describe the process of healing and the process of mental illnesses and how they get put in place. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Dr. Michael Carson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. Um, you want to introduce yourself a little bit to listeners? Sure. Uh, I uh, practiced uh, clinical and forensic psychology for about 25 years, um, including uh, most of my forensic work was in the child welfare system, um, working with preventing assessing um, abused or neglected kids and their parents. And then in my uh, clinical work, <clears throat> I worked in a variety of settings, uh, individual, couple, and family therapy. And, uh, and then I got an academic job uh, 17 years ago at the University of Denver, and I've been working in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology ever since. Great, great. Quite a quite a background. Um, and you have written a lot of uh, articles, very prolific, actually, uh, in your blog writing for Psychology Today. And that's where I kind of came across. And I was um, hoping to first uh, dive into psychopathology and how you delineate between something that's more biological in nature and something that's more psychological in nature. Cool. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, it's been a long-term uh, question for uh, the helping professions and uh, we've come up with different answers to it over uh, the decades that um, we've been preoccupied with it as a profession. And I'm not sure there's a way to even begin a discussion of that without first locating that discussion in some kind of cultural uh, framework. Um, I like to credit Freud. Obviously, Freud didn't invent literature, poetry, metaphor and philosophy, but he was possibly the first to um, meet with uh, psychiatry patients and neurology patients and think that those kinds of things might be relevant to the work he was doing. 
I should have mentioned uh, spiritual work as well. Uh, so um, Freud met patients who were uh, expressing themselves in a neurological context, and he was reinterpreting what was going on with them in a spiritual, literary, and philosophical context. Now we get the opposite. Now we get people who are coming in and talking about their uh, spiritual, philosophical, psychological, familial problems, and we're reframing them as um, neurological patients. You know, what in their brain is making them behave this way as opposed to what in the world is making them behave this way. So I do think it's interesting uh, tr if you're trying to be fluent in more than one language. And, uh, and I think if you're working in the mental health professions, it makes sense to know something about the brain and something about the way the reasons people behave as they do to sometimes try to distinguish those and label as uh, brain disorders um, those uh, problems that, you know, the primary way of understanding them would be neurological. And by this, I mean um, many of the schizophrenic presentations, m most of the bipolar presentations, and what uh, smart people are saying are about 10% of depressions and 10% of anxiety um, disorders. You know, it might be best thought of as the brain's not working the way it usually works, and that's what's producing these. And to distinguish that from something more psychological, um, which is uh, answers to questions of why are you behaving as you are. But, um, and, and that's kind of tracing maybe like where the weight of the mental illness is kind of located, but, but you could need medicine, you could need medication in either camp, in either category, right? Well, I would, I would have some dispute with the word need. Um, you know, I, I tend to think of uh, depression, for example, as a uh, tendency to view yourself as a bag of chemicals. This was uh, uh, Kierkegaard's idea about what depression is, is a solution to the existential problem of having an infinite mind and a finite body by ignoring the infinity of the mind and uh, defining oneself only as a finite body. And so depressed people, even if they're depressed um, purely for psychological reasons, are more likely to think of themselves as a chemical creature than, for hmm. example, a spiritual, psychological, or uh, other kind of person. And so they tend to think of chemical solutions to the problem of depression because of their depression. And if we treat them with chemicals, um, we seem to be solidifying that definition of themselves and uh, in some ways locking them into it. With anxiety, I tend to think of anxiety, you know, to me the big issue in anxiety, uh, among the many, many cases that are there's not something wrong with the way the brain works. You know, uh, anxiety could be seen as a burglar alarm. It goes off and it tells you there's something wrong. Well, when the burglar alarm goes off, medication for anxiety is like disabling your burglar alarm. 
Mm-hmm. But that's not a good idea if there's a burglar or if there are burglars in your environment. It's probably a better idea to um, deal with the burglar rather than disabling the burglar alarm. Gotcha. So to extend that metaphor to say a combat veteran you you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to disable the alarm while you were still in the war you'd kind of want to wait till you were back out of the war and in a relatively safe environment and then you could disable the alarm when it was out when it was an outdated alarm or exactly and uh and yeah i agree and i i think the primary you know really good way to think about uh, PTSD is to think of it as um, your uh, alarm is broken. It keeps going off when there's nothing wrong, and then it doesn't go off when there are things that are wrong. And then uh, how do we reset your um, alarm is uh, a question. Now, it may be that for the person to be able to participate in treatment, they might need some medication just to take the edge off of the of the life they're living under that kind of apprehension. But um, it's the medication in psychological problems is often a way to um, keep things the same rather than to create a change relationship. Sure. I, I, I see what you're getting at. We've become very medicalized. Yes. So with with schizophrenia, if you have, say, like, I mean, I know they're not like kind of perfect either or things. It's probably more of a continuum. But if PTSD is kind of more like something psychological that's happened in development or happened um, in adulthood uh, later on or, or wherever, and schizophrenia is more brain based, I mean, how do you kind of understand schizophrenics that uh, have had childhood trauma? Yeah, well, then it becomes complicated, but um, a very loose metaphor for that for me would be um, somebody with uh, multiple sclerosis or diabetes can also have psychological problems, not just illness issues. so, you know, somebody with a bipolar disorder can have a fear of flying and you could treat the fear of flying so they could get on the plane and go to their sister's wedding and not treat the bipolar disorder. Or you may decide that the fear of flying, decide together, I mean, with the person that the fear of flying relates to the bipolar disorder and then you have to treat both. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, people with schizophrenia can also have normal problems. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, one, one thing I, I liked about what you said about psychopath. Well, actually, before I get into Karen Horney, um, I wanted to ask a little, another thing on the, about schizophrenia and schizoaffective and those things that are kind of on that spectrum. I've seen psychoanalytic diagnostics where um, you have a kind of schizoid personality structure and you have on the kind of uh, lesser side, you have personality disorders like schizoid, schizotypal avoidance 
personality disorders. And then as you progress on that personality structure to worse and worse, you get schizophrenia and schizoaffective. And like, how would you reconcile like that cycle, psychoanalytic diagnostic with the idea that maybe personality disorders are more psychological and schizophrenia is more biological, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, it's an interesting history. And I, and I think to um, think productively about that issue, um, it helps to know that, uh, what the history is. And the history is that um, uh, psychoanalysis did a really good job of understanding the importance of parental figures in people's psychologies. And then brought that understanding into places it didn't belong. Um, uh, accusing the parents of autistic children, for example, of being unresponsive to the kids and accusing, uh, the parents of, um, schizophrenic adults, uh, of all kinds of horrors. Um, so it was a, uh, over extension of a useful, um, idea. But what gets obscured by the politics of it is the function of a particular psychotic moment. And, um, you know, in most people who are diagnosed with psychosis nowadays, uh, there's typically a brain problem. And um, the person has to be dealt with in the way we would deal with somebody with a physical illness. Um, but there still, it still happens that people sometimes have psychotic moments for psychological reasons. And uh, the typical understanding of that um, that I see is that uh, when a person elects not to exist as a way of managing, uh, elects is the wrong word, when uh, drifts into non-existence as a way of managing life's problems, uh, their behavior can be described as psychotic because um, a psychotic moment is a way of not existing psychologically. So if that becomes uh, a habit and a way of life, then you can look at um, psychologically based personality disorders like schizoid or schizotypal um, that still fundamentally have a psychological root and you would expect to see moments of psychosis. But it still helps to distinguish that from somebody whose brain just doesn't work right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's God, that's a great answer. Um yeah, that's that's really interesting. What about so you're you're basically saying though that somebody could be schizophrenic and not have arrived at that point through using non-existence right because because um we don't really know what goes wrong with the brain and schizophrenia but i think at this point the vast majority of people who don't enter this uh debate with a under a banner as it were uh are are agreed that there's something wrong with the way the brain works um yeah yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And so, yeah, I guess now we can move on to uh, what you were saying in one of your blogs that I really liked about Karen Horney and how she um, delineated between the real self and the ideal self. And um, perhaps you could say something about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, well, uh, f- first, I'd like to say that uh, every definition of psychopathology is culture bound. And one of the relevant cultures in which it is bound is the theoretical orientation of the professional who's trying to uh, suss out psychopathology. Um, and I find that most of the major theories have ways of thinking about psychopathology that can be very useful. Um, I would like to not be wedded to any one of them, but to... Uh, let an interaction with a patient evoke the theory that's going to be um, uh, useful in a particular uh, helper-patient dyad. Uh, but one that's been particularly useful for, for me is Karen, Karen Hornice approach. Uh, patients tend to get it right away, and I also um, think, like I said, it's extremely useful. It's rooted in existentialism. Uh, so Hornay's, um, theory of neurosis, which is her name for psychopathology, um, is an extension of, uh, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. And, um, what she says is that the primary problem, the primary difference between a human being and a dog or a human being and a oak tree is that the human being can imagine things being different. And, that imagination can spur creativity, industry, uh, poetry, uh, or it can spur um, creating a different world in which um, the limitations of the self and the problems that one faces uh, are transcended and don't exist. And then she says, basically, uh, psychopathology is investing in the false self that is created or the idealized self that's created by this fantasy of perfection. And health is uh, investing in the real self, um, which is a little bit hard to define in people, but um, it's to the extent that it means um, uh, growth development in ways that are... uh, you know, human, um, are not, uh, they're not puzzling. Um, the least puzzling times to identify the real self is when you're with an actual, uh, person, because people often have dreams or memories in which the real self is, uh, clearly depicted as a child. And when somebody has memories or dreams of themselves as a child, or there's a child in it, usually the child represents the real self, and the rest of the memory or the dream represents all of the uh, hurdles and, um, uh, you know, baggage that the uh, real self has been saddled with. And investing in the welfare of that uh, inner child um, is health and ignoring the inner child in order to uh, polish up a perfectionistic image of oneself is psychopathology in her view. 
Gotcha. And um, you also went through three different types of, I guess, ideal selves or false selves that people can focus on with the superhero, the mystic, and the saint. Yes. Uh, uh, this is all from Horn. I, I think those are my names for her um, her thing, but I, I may have picked them up somewhere else or from her. Um, but Hornite says, you know, there's so much tension having a perfectionistic image of yourself uh, and a uh, all too human real self that uh, one way of essentially dealing with it is to say, I'm only my perfectionistic self, uh, the real self I disown. And uh, she called that um, the arrogant, uh, vindictive, or the expansive type. I, I, I think it's interesting to think of it as a superhero way of understanding yourself. Uh, then she says the other way of um, managing it is to give up on the um, idealized self and say, I'm only this bundle of all too human reality. I have no internal spirit, um, which she called uh, the self-effacing type. And I, I would think of as uh, being like a saint, you know, somebody who never makes any claims on anything is basically defining themselves as a doormat. And then the third way of solving the existential um, dilemma, she said, is to walk away from it and say, it doesn't apply to me, um, which she calls the, the appeal of freedom. Um, and I kind of summarize that as the mystic. And so once somebody has a way of managing the tension between the idealized self and the real self, uh, it can become a way of life. And then you find people specializing in these three kinds of perfectionism. I'm, I'm better than others. Uh, I'm more lovable than others or unassuming. Uh, and I'm more spiritual. And I, uh, I, the rat race doesn't apply to me. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like health would require reality testing more more for for people that get stuck in these patterns. It seems like the move towards health would be a move towards being authentic about maybe your limits and imperfections and moving towards uh, engagement. Yes, and uh, yeah, I feel like one of the uh, healthy questions in life is um, how long do I expect to live. And how should I use the time? Uh, and there are a lot of people who don't like to ask that first question. And so they can end up living as if they're going to die every, you know, uh, there's a scene in Zorba the Greek where Zorba meets, a, I think, a gardener. And the gardener says, I live each day as if I will never die. And Zorba <laughs> says, that's funny because I live as if I will die each day. And I think those are both existential pathologies. You know, I feel like um, the, uh, if you pardon the phrase, correct way to live is to, you know, if your life expectancy tables say you'll probably have 43 more years, then you should probably live as if you'll have more or less 43 more years. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is something. Yeah. Cause, and then going to the categories you mentioned, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, the mystic almost in a sense acts like you're eternal. You're never going to die, you exactly. know? So it never faces the human 
apart, you know. Exactly. Whereas maybe the saint thinks they're, you know, they're they're giving themselves to martyrdom every day. Yes. Right. Yeah. So moving on, if um, I wanted to zero in a little bit on some of um, your thoughts about personality disorders and um there's something about how you've described uh, situations and an inflexible pattern in personality disorders that can only like tolerate like a very restricted number of situations. And if you change, even if they're not presenting with any symptoms or problems, if you change their situation a little bit, it'll just throw them into a tailspin. Yeah, so um, I don't like the DSM emphasis on uh, distress and dysfunction because uh, one uh, metaphor I have is, you know, like uh, if you live a very sedentary life your heart, and you have a very bad heart, your heart uh, could experience no distress and no dysfunction. If all you ever do is Zoom meetings and watch TV, your heart will never hurt you and uh, you will be in no distress. But a doctor who um, examines your heart and says, you know, the arterial walls are thin or whatever it is. I don't, I don't really know that much about the heart, but you know, like you've got a really bad ticker would be right. Even though you experience no distress or dysfunction. And I, I think there's an analogy for personality disorders that way, which is you no, know, you know, people, if you have a personality disorder, you create a world in which your personality disorder works for you. Avoid this. The whole point of it is it manages your distress and dysfunction. But if you were going to be put into some other kind of situation and it would cause you to, you know, fall apart or lose track of yourself or uh, behave very disadvantageously, then it's still fair to say that you have a personality problem, even though um, you don't typically experience distress or dysfunction. So I was trying to figure out some other way to think about personality disorders than the DSM um, provides in that respect. Sure. And the situation that would have to change to throw things off for the asymptomatic personality disorder, it'd have to be like a reasonable situation. It couldn't be like yeah. getting uh, being a prisoner of war and getting tortured or something that would like throw everybody into bad shape. Yes, exactly. And you, you could even say that if you want to use the definition of that uh, approach to personality disorder, the thing that would throw you off would have to be something that's uh, culturally, and again, by the word culturally, I mean the patient's culture as we usually understand it, and also the culture of the um, theoretical orientation, you know, that would be culturally expected. So um, when you see somebody functioning well, but they've never been in love, or uh, you see somebody functioning well, but their work doesn't engage them, and then you're like, uh, yeah, I get you're functioning well, but what would happen if you thought about maybe work that engages you or relationships that um, are more intimate? Right, right. And um, and you're really good with, with metaphors and analogies. One of the other ones I noticed was the map and the territory. wonder if you could kind of extend this to that 
metaphor. Yeah, I like the idea of um, psychopathology is uh, using a map that doesn't apply to the territory you're in. Uh, and the map is usually um, a, a map of how human relationships work. And it's usually um, one that you learned as a child or in, in a family. And then you you apply that map to every situation you're in, or you get a, you get a whole book of maps from your family, but you try to apply those to situations you're in. And the more committed you are to the map, rather than to a, adapting to information that the situation you're in doesn't, uh, doesn't fit the map. Um, the more you're committed to the map, the more I would like to use the word psychopathology to describe that commitment. Yeah. And one thing that comes to mind with outdated maps that we may be using is a lot of the outdated maps are so deeply ingrained do you have a favorite method of um, maybe changing the outdated map? I mean, because they're so deeply ingrained, it may take years, decades, a lifetime for people to keep challenging their outdated map. Yes. Um, I, I think there are uh, dozens, hundreds of ways of change. Uh, you know, somebody can listen to a piece of music, read something, uh, and it, it can, it, it can, it, it can rock them and change the, change people in different ways. You know, my, uh, um, uh, area of uh, focus has been on changing people with relationships in what's called psychotherapy. Um, and I, I just want to be crystal clear. That is not the only way or the main way people change. It's just a particular uh, way that people change. And the thing that the psychoanalysts teach us that I, I just think is so deep and so important is that if you provide a certain amount of ambiguity in the relationship, and I agree with most psychoanalysts that the more the better, the, the person will show you their map um, rather than um, talk about it. And then you're in a position with the patient where you can say, wow, look at us. We're operating in a map of Boston, but we're in Denver. Or um, uh, to put that into more, uh, into clearer terms, um, somehow you've turned our relationship into an oppositional struggle, into a contest about who's going to win this struggle. And it seems to me that that came from you and is a way you, is, is metaphorically a kind of roadmap you use to uh, navigate uh, relationships that um, they may look like helping relationships or they may look uh, friendly or coordinated, but they're really going to turn into a battle of wills. And so if you can... Uh, the the method um, to answer your question uh, that I'm engaged in or feel um, excited by is the one of finding the map as it's being deployed and used, locating ourselves in it, and then wondering how we got into 
a struggle as opposed to what we said it was going to be, which was a collaborative explanation of, you know, how you're messing up your life. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Living the map in real life with the therapist. Yeah, so uh, my summary of that is that the the, uh, relational therapy depends on the patient screwing up the therapy the same way they screw up their other relationships. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess the same would hold true with maybe couples counseling, where you're getting people to encounter their maps in session. Yes, and then it's uh, vis-a-vis each other rather than vis-a-vis us. I mean, there are some couples where you have to do some clarifying about what my role is here. Um, but And you're mainly then looking at how they're um, making assumptions and how their expectations of each other are throwing them into an unproductive relationship. Um, and then in individual therapy, it's much more about the way the person is construing the therapy and the therapist. Yeah. Just on a side note, I'm always curious about this, but do couples um, that you did couples counseling with, were there a lot of them that saw you, whether as a therapist, they kind of saw you as a judge, like you were going to say one was right and one was wrong kind of thing? Yes. And uh, a referee... Uh, well, a referee implies that you're going to be, uh, um, fighting each other. <laughs> <Not sure why. laughs> right. Be a referee. Uh, yes. Also a judge. Uh, also, uh, um, not too infrequently, a, a competitor. So I'll be a competitor with one member of the couple for the other and vice versa. And, um, these things need to be clarified before we can go on. Um, but f- sometimes they turn out to be maps that the people in the couple are committed to. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that the the map of, of you being a judge, that's probably a whole map right there from childhood or that they use in, in the rest of their life too. So that could be an opportunity for confrontation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So with um, going back to uh, on the personality disorders thread, um, how do how do those develop? Do they develop in early childhood? Well, um, again, this is all context uh, bound on theory. Um, You can see from Horney's point of view that uh, um, personality disorder is a major commitment to the idealized self. And then in that context, it's really one of the few um, psychoanalytic theories that could account for a personality disorder developing later in life. But I think the mainstream uh, psychoanalytic view is that um, we're basically born with a personality disorder, meaning we're born with very few ways of looking at the world. And we what we learn as we're developing over the first five years is uh, the reality of other people's inner worlds, Um, uh, the flexibility about how to relate to other people and the ways we can welcome the different aspects of ourselves into our understanding of who we are. And then when we've done those things, um, then we, you know, have a healthy personality. It's so uh, personality disorders in that view are developmental failures rather than 
something that you develop. Gotcha, gotcha. It's, it's like you start with it and don't develop out of it through healthy conditioning. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What, what, what's your take on um, dissociation? Uh, it's a way of managing uh, um, conflict. So it's a can be labeled as a defense in that respect. And like any other defense, it can become a way of life. Uh, sometimes what's being defended against is so horrible. This is what PTSD is about. That dissociation kind of lends itself as the um, primary way of uh, managing it. There seems to be a bio, bio uh, what's the right word, evolutionary basis for that is, you know, that um, many people think it was, you know, a survival tactic or uh, it was a, a selection, it was selected for people to be able to carry on in great pain. And the way to carry on in great pain is uh, dissociation. Um, sure. Do you think there's a genetic predisposition of some kind? Um, yeah, I, I have no reason to think that there's not. Um, but whether there is or not, it's, you know, it's the, the treatment that's interesting, which is um, creating a whole sense of self, um, even when the uh, person is managing difficult material by dissociating. I mean, we all dissociate. It's if you've ever driven home from work and uh, you got in the car, you started it, and the next thing you knew, you're pulling into your driveway. Um, you know what dissociation is, right? Right. But right. Mostly, our dissociate—we're not committed to it. If something happens, we usually uh, regain our attention, and we usually don't dissociate in. Unfortunately, that is a dangerous situation, but um, it becomes so familiar that its danger is lost to us. But usually we dissociate in situations where it's um, safe to. And, yeah, and then you mentioned it, healing from the dissociation or a treatment for the dissociation could involve something about your sense of self. Could you say more about that? I'm... Not sure what you're referring to, but um, generally speaking, um, you know, uh, there's some argument about what is us and what's not us. Uh, some of the, um, you know, uh, conflict in the history of psychology is arguing about what a human being is. But once you have some idea of what a human being is, then that should be included in your sense of self if you're going to be um, functioning at your best. Uh, you know, there are many, many cultures that don't include sexuality as a part of the self and don't include or don't include uh, aggression as part of the self. But I think any fair, you know, uh, comparative look at the human is going to say, you know, by and large, it's a sexual, aggressive social animal um but then bad things happen to us and we don't include those as part of ourselves even though they're clearly part of our history and one way about looking about uh, at what a recovery is is it's reclaiming all the things that have happened to you and all the things that you are and finding some way to integrate those into who you think you are 
and um, how you see yourself. And psychotherapy can help with that by talking about the bad things that have happened. Sure, sure. Well, this has been a fascinating interview, and um, thanks so much for being here, Dr. Carson. Oh, glad to. Uh, Nice talking to you. All righty. Take care. Thank you.